0: Welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Module 3.2. And for further handouts and materials, you can go to certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome so much for joining in to KCADV, Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence um, podcast. We were talking a little bit earlier about understanding the impact on advocates and advocacy. So we're going to continue on with that conversation with a focus on how we do the work. So how do we actually show up and do the work? And just as to remind everybody, I am sitting here with Tisha Pletcher, who works at the University of Louisville in their peace program. And she also is a life coach. Do you say life coach? Or just coach? That's either one. Either one? Okay. And then I'm Diane Fleet, and I am the assistant director at Greenhouse 17, which is a KCADV member program that serves the 17 counties in central Kentucky. So, yeah, so we just had a pretty robust conversation a little bit ago. um, But for those that are just now sort of tuning in, we really kind of want to talk about how we are doing the work. And I know when we were preparing for this, um, there were some major parts that we wanted to talk about um, regarding trauma um, and and how we sort of evaluate organizationally how we respond to trauma. And there was a tool that we sort of like to use as a a bit of a guide in the conversation, and that might just be easiest so that we make sure that we're covering all topics. Do you want to talk just a little bit about that organizational tool? Yes, and I think, if I understand correctly from KCADV,
1: that you'll have this tool available available. To you to review and or maybe you have it in front of you right now and it might be helpful as you're listening to Diane and I talk, but the document is called an organizational reflection tool and the seven areas that the tool covers are as follows. The organizational commitment, staff support, the physical, sensory, and relational environment, the intake process, programs and services, community, partnerships, and feedback and evaluation. And this tool was designed by a number of programs around the country, and like Diane said, it was put together as a tool for your whole program, so your center, your shelter, your program, to use to kind of look at all of these different areas that I just named ask some questions, sort of reflect on sort of where are we with each of these things? Um, Are we thinking about all of this from every single angle? Are there ways that we want to improve or change what we're doing um, to be more trauma-informed? Or kind of sort of where are we with it? One of the things that comes up when we do the certification training in person and when we're looking at this tool, and so when you're in the same room with advocates across the state, sometimes we get to this point where we're looking at this tool and you'll see advocates kind of looking at each other across the room from different programs and they'll think, gosh, well, my center doesn't do this. Or, oh, that Greenhouse 17 over there, they've got the farm and they're doing that. There can be, I don't want to say comparison, but there can be this um, understanding that sometimes like all programs in all places, like they're they're not at the same place in each of these areas. And that's okay because it is a process. It's an evolving process of figuring out how can we do all of these things better in a more trauma-informed way. And that's what the tool is all about, is to guide folks through that process. uh, and if this wasn't, I guess, clear when I was talking about the tool or introducing it, um, I think again, when we've used it at certification we have been you've, we've had advocates come together just from other programs, sometimes when you're just looking at the tool, it can be easy to think, well, I'm not the director or I'm not Diana's the assistant director, and so I'm not able to make some of these decisions or changes in my program. And so how would this tool be useful to me? And I think one of the things that I would suggest is, First of all, there are places, and that's what we're going to focus on today. There are places in the tool that you might get ideas that you're going to be able to champion and incorporate into your advocacy, and you don't need any permission, you know, to do it. And that's the those are the parts that we'll be talking about today. The other thing too is that you might find yourself, you know, like Diane or other folks who at some point in time you might be on a committee that's reviewing, you know, your mission statement or your evaluation program, you might become a director director or an assistant director where you're going to have some more say in some of these areas um, than than what you might have right now. So just staying open-minded um, about that. Any questions that you have, Diane, about the tool?
0: I don't really topic? think so. You know, I, again, I know as we were preparing for this, uh, we were sort of paying attention to who we thought primarily who our audience was. Um, so I think we will touch on all seven aspects, but I really wanted to hone in on the four of them because I do think it's something that... That, as you just said a second ago, that people, no matter where they are in the organization, brand new or having been there a little bit, all have impact and influence um, to to. Uh, to evaluate, to make some changes, to kind of bring this forth and how it is that you do the work. So, so that that really is it. I just wanted to let folks know, not that we don't think the other parts are important. I think feedback is extremely important. We will touch on that, Um, but there's some areas that I think just might be a little more easy to grasp for folks that are kind of new to the work. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely.
1: Um, You and I were talking about this earlier. And I think the way we'll probably start to talk through some of these different areas is really thinking about how a person might be walking through or experiencing our program.
0: And so where, you know, where would they start? Yeah. So I love that if it's okay with you, I'd like to start in that physical and sensory and relational space. So that is sort of like you are connecting with this program for the very first time, whether that's virtually, which we're all doing a lot of right now, or actually the physical space, whether you're in an outreach office or whether you are working currently in the shelter program. But I'd love to have that conversation with you if that's good. And something you said a a second ago as well is, is you don't have to, I mean, none of this has to be gigantic right Right. and and untouchable and so it's a little bit of asset mapping a little bit to a degree or or for kind of lay person's terms of what do you got like just what do you have that you can kind of make some of these changes and you don't have to have a, a place that's out in the out in a Field out in nature and and have a forty-acre farm. You might be, you know, right downtown Louisville, right. Um, So, what is it that you have that's at your ability to sort of make some of these happen? Don't get into the comparative place. Really begin to honor your identity as a program in your place, and what is it that you can kind of bring forward? So, yeah, I, I I like that piece about comparison. When we talk about nature work, I hear lots of times people go, "Well, we don't have this all this land, so we can't do it." Oh, but she can, yeah. you know, but you but can bring nature into your, into your program. So physical, sensory, and relational space. What are you talking about a little bit, Tisha, when we're, when we're mentioning that?
1: Um, one of the things that, and I'm going to start here with this one, but I'll probably keep coming back to it at all of the topics and the areas that we're looking at today is I keep asking myself, if this were my sister, I've got one sibling. If this were my sister walking through your program or showing up there, you know, Diane, what would I want her to experience? And, and, and a lot of maybe what we'll talk about today, it's gonna link to our the conversation we had this morning, you know, too, is about how we're showing up and how the people that she might interact with, if she were showing up at your program, what would be, that be like? And it might start on a crisis line. It might start in the hallway of a courthouse. It might start, you know, sometimes we have folks who access us not yet walking through the crisis line door or the shelter, you know, um, not pathway, but you're Not road, (laughs) (laughs) your trail, your gate to the the shelter. But maybe it's as a volunteer because that's an easier way for them to first get to know you all and trust you or maybe it's donating or something. So anyways, I think that thinking about how people that we know and love, how they what we would want for them if they were interacting um, with your physical relational space environment, the first thing to think about is, is it welcoming? And, and this is probably something you're going to hear us say on repeat for the next hour is that what's welcoming to me might not be welcoming for the next person or the next person or my sister, right? Like I'm not a, I hopefully I'm not going to offend anybody when I say this, but like I'm not a pumpkin spice candle person. Lots of people are, We're right? we this interview right I know, now. I know. Okay. I'm like, I probably shouldn't <laughs> have given that one right now because right. it's so popular and it's almost October, But 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 I'm not. And so, you know, like, is that going to be welcoming if that's on in the lobby when I first show up? But for other people, it might be. But thinking about, like, what is that welcoming environment that we can create, even before they even step foot into our program? You know, is the the walk up... Um, clear? You know, is it, are there flowers planted? You know, is there chalk, you know, written on it by the kids from the shelter? Um, is the grass mowed? You know, is it when you walk inside that it's, your, you know, the main space is the floors are clean or, you know, there's a sign up that says welcome. I mean, you know, all of those things, if you think about if somebody were walking into my house or my sister was walking into my house, what would I want them to experience in all of the different ways? And does it feel welcoming? Is it accessible for folks? When I was just saying, like, um, you know, is the you know is the sidewalk? You know, are people able? If someone was showing up in a wheelchair or on crutches, like, would they be able <laughs> to actually enter your space? Um, being thoughtful about that um other things that people might think about when they're entering or or us as advocates as we're designing our physical space is just is the reading material that's there is the decor you know is it comfortable are there options you know for people you know to sit are there places for the kids to go and interact with a pile of toys or kids books or coloring books nearby as mom is beginning to talk to somebody um, so, really, are the reading materials, are your brochures only in English or not? You know, what is your community, you know, population like, so that you're making sure that all of your materials are matching the languages that speak people speak in your community, so that again, people can feel we're back to welcome, making them feel welcome. Um, one of the things when we're talking about physical environments that I actually love thinking about when I'm thinking about trauma-informed spaces is just all of these different layers of senses or sensory input. So making sure that like, do we have different colors, you know, from one room to the next? Are there some rooms that are a little bit cozier and darker and then other rooms that have a lot of light to them? Are there some spaces that um, might be, people are able to be a little bit noisier and loud and the TV's on or people are talking over the, you know, the kitchen table, you know, in the dining room area? Are there also spaces that are really quiet? Maybe the lights are dimmed and maybe it's a place, more of a quiet room or um, a place for just adults to be. Um, Are there spaces that people, we talked about this an hour ago, are there spaces where people can get out into nature, where they can still be safe outside of a building? Are there places for kids? Is there a playground or is there some toys, you know, something for them to interact with? lots and lots of things that we can kind of make sure that we have options so that as our folks are spending time with us in our spaces, that they're going to need different things at different times. I need different things at different times. Back to thinking about my sister entering your program, you know, she, she's she got two kids. You know, there would be times where she would need them to be noisy and have places for them to go. She'd also need places where she could kind of have a quiet moment, kind of maybe it's the, doing put paperwork or you know interviewing for a job or just talking with her advocate or just having a moment of quiet time. So being able to give people options is really, really important i want to pause there because I just talked a lot about the physical environment.
0: Well, what comes up for you? When yeah, I'm no, I mean I was sort of enamored with it. I guess what came up with me was when you were listing off all the different options, maybe to have in the program, is because I think we have a tendency when we try to create a welcoming space that we look into see what would make us feel welcome, right? Right. And but what makes us you, the person, you the listener, feel welcome might not be welcoming for everybody. So so getting lots of feedback, asking the women that utilize services, asking your community partners, asking folks um, that maybe are not the ones that are showing up regularly to your program and asking them because potentially they're not showing up at your program because they don't feel welcome. You might think that they don't need the services, but maybe they just don't feel welcome in the program. I don't know. It's worth the investigation of it, and and at the same time, you just might have some great dialogue and, and that could lead into different partnerships and things too. So, so as you're, as you're evaluating that space, um, I I think it's always sort of, uh, evolving. I think it's always sort of creating. I sometimes, find that what one population in the shelter needs might look really different in six months so I might have a lot of um, moms with kids and the shelter sort of has to take on a different sort of vibe then all of a sudden I might have a bunch of 55 year old single women that need some quiet you know and so so not that you can rebuild right every time but you might just sort of change things up you know we might need some more quiet nook spaces or we might need you know um, a little more where we can add, you know, color or vibrancy differently, or maybe we need to bring in those different sensory things, whether that's music or however, but, but always sort of have a pulse on who is currently using your program, as well as have a pulse on lots of different communities, not to make it sounds like all communities are homogenous, but lots of different communities. So you begin to um, really build sort of a vibrant program that speaks to, you know, what all the women, men and children might need in, in your in your area. Um, and I do think that happens sometimes with the best of intentions, right? Like I, this is what I would do if someone was coming to my house and I, I would have lots of pumpkin spice and you would leave, <laughs> you would leave my home mad and go, what is all this pumpkin spice? So I think that's, that's important. The other thing that I sometimes see different um, uh, program sort of battle with is the, the visibility of safety um, practices versus welcoming. It seems like sometimes those two things juxtapose. If I, like some people are very um, walled off, gated, right. lots of um, this is what we do when a situation happens, we have protocol when this happens, but that can sometimes be scary. Oh my gosh, I've entered this house and now I'm into this scary space, right? or some people might feel very comforted to know right. that there's gates and alarms and all these things so balancing a little bit of that I, I heard that a little bit with students when they were going back to schools so they were putting um, like the metal detectors in the door some students felt very secure that there was metal detectors and other kids it was a reminder every day that people were bringing guns and that there's danger looming in what they considered a safe space so I think a little bit of a balance of of that like how do you present your program because it's really hard to heal and move on if you're in a constant space or state of, of, um, of danger. And, and if you're, if you're, kind of symbolic messaging is that? That you're always in danger, that you're always at risk, that, that we're here for victims. Um, I have one dear friend of mine who really doesn't like the the posters with the black eye, right, you know? And so so what is our messaging um, to look at it in that response to? Yeah, I'm really glad that you talked about, there's a couple things coming up for
1: me here, but speaking to that last point, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's one thing that I didn't share. And that is us considering what some of those, we talked earlier about trauma reminders and how we might experience those as advocates. But for people coming into our programs or accessing our outreach offices, really thinking about are there like, are all the doors locked? You know, is there, I I don't think any of our programs have metal detectors, but you know, all of those, are there, is there plexiglass in between you know right you know the the crisis room or the intake room you know versus someone has or where they're getting their meds and they have to stand outside and they can't walk in here and you know and All of those reminders, the rules, um, being locked in, you know, hallway gets locked or all the doors have to be locked and you know, like all of that can be, can be reminders. And I think you made a really good point. Like, how do we balance that? You know, it's, it's not going to be effective for us to not have any of those. That's part of why you exist and um, to to provide that kind of safe space. but. But still not having it, not leading with that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Not having it be so bold or so like in their right. face is really important. I remember um, a story that folks at the Center for Women and Families shared with me a few years ago when they were doing, a. I think it was there, was doing a bunch of remodeling uh, of their shelter. And the old shelter would have rooms like... like like, let's say I my family was in one, you know, room and there were beds in it in the bathroom. And then the next one would be like, basically kind of like right behind it. So the next family would have to go through the the bedroom of the first family. Well, talk about a trauma reminder, just in how that physical space was set up, that they didn't have privacy or people were walking through, you know, through that space until they were able to redesign it. They actually, um, you had some damage to the building. Hopefully some of you, might know this already, but, and so they had to get a lot of funding to really invest in their physical space and and to redo it. But, so that was a perk for them that they were able to change that, but that was something for them to think about is how were people experiencing that if they were at sleep with their kids and, and would have people walking through.
0: I, I think it's probably a really smart thing to walk through your building as if you were entering, right? And so yes. not again, it, to reiterate that not everybody's going to uh, respond the same way that you are. One thing that I noticed about our program, um, I hope Darlene doesn't get too upset with me, but I think she would agree with it, is that we noticed that the building was very attractive as you walked in, but the further you got away from the front door <laughs> and went into the resident areas, sort of the the homelier it got, mm-hmm. you know? And and you know, the used furniture was a little bit more, more down on that end and the pictures on the wall were a little more crooked and you know, and it was like we were in a really like, you always do sort of wanna show your best front, right? So somebody walking into the building or a donor or the community, like you wanted that to be like your, like you always had the front parlor room in the old days, right? You had the living room that nobody ever used, but it was always ready for to receive guests. And then, oh, come into the family room and here's where our mess is made. But we also noticed that there was a a little bit lack of dignity and respect for folks who were going into the inner spaces. Mm -hmm. And so when we remodeled, great deal of emphasis on um, the whole building and the residence rooms and the resident hallways and the residence restrooms because it it was a glaring, uh, we actually videotaped ourselves walking through the building, Mm -hmm. and and it really was a glaring reminder. So... um, Having your space with that dignity, not having things set up where you're walking through somebody's bedroom, um, you know that that seems not like it's a big aha moment. But yeah. but if that's the money you have, right. you know h- how can you set this up differently, or what can you do differently? Because um, we definitely want to give our families the respect and the dignity that they need and and deserve. And so space can be such 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 a big a big piece of that. Yeah.
1: You said something earlier too, Diane, that I wanna highlight because even though we said we, we, we might not be talking a, a ton today about the feedback and evaluation part of it, I think it will be embedded in everything that, that we're talking about and you brought it into this one. And I think, you know, sometimes I think when we think about feedback and evaluation, we think of like the super huge, you know, study that we partner with UK on and we, you know, have some special grant on and we're collecting all this data. And that's important, and there are places for that. And sometimes it's as simple as sitting down with our folks, you know, who are either accessing us, or you gave the example of who's not showing up, and is it maybe because they don't feel welcome here? And let's do a little mini check-in with them. Let's do some evaluation, a soft evaluation with a, you know, lowercase e, of just saying – you know what would be what would make this more welcoming? You know, for you, what pieces? What can we add in? Um, what are we? What's missing um, that would make you more comfortable here? One of the questions when I'm trained in, in Green Dot, and, and for those of you who also might be prevention educators, this might sound familiar to you. One of the things that we always talk about when we're talking about the curriculum and the adaptations with our curriculum, our prevention education, we always talk about like, if I, if I were, hopefully this again doesn't sound crude, but like blank, fill in the blank, you know, how would I know I, w- I was welcome here? How would I know this curriculum was for me or speaking to me? But I think if we apply it here, it's about how would I know? How would I know if I was a man? How would I know if I was trans? How would I know if, you know, if I was a Republican, if I was Appalachian, how would I know that I'm welcome here? And I think that's just a that's a really easy, simple, basic question to ask all of the folks, you know, from all of our counties or all of our areas just to say, You know, how can we improve our physical
0: space? absolutely and it's not enough to say well you know our community is made up of 80% this or women are 90% of our population or you know again what of whatever you know gender faith whatever that is that's true you want to be able to speak to the folks that are utilizing your services but not to the detriment that you're leaving others out so so whether you're kind of you know creating a safe field for everybody that that is you know, equitable and not reflective of one over another, or you're being extremely thoughtful of making sure that there are lots of pictures and languages and brochures and, and things, um, food, the food, food that you serve, yes. right? That was always a big thing for us. Um, the food that you serve is reflective of the community, not only that showing up at the, at the door, but that you want to make sure that they know they can show up at your door. So I think that that's extremely important. I think we, we can... T- Go into intake now, if that's okay with you, because that sort of is leading a little bit where we're at. So so someone has felt comfortable enough that they've reached out for services, and now you know, now's where the hard part, you want them to stay, right? You want them to stay and and to work with them. So what are your thoughts around the intake process?
1: One of the the first things that comes to mind when I think about intake, well, actually two things. Very first thing, when I hear the word intake, I actually think paperwork. I think like all these questions that somebody might have have to answer immediately, and it kind of makes, (laughs) makes me cringe and get really uncomfortable. The cringe of like thinking of intake paperwork. That's my first association with it. Second, The second place where my head goes, when I ask myself, I'm back to curious. We talked a lot this morning about curiosity. And if I get curious about intake and what the intention of it is, it really is about welcoming people like we, what we were just saying. It's their first interaction a lot of times, or it's the more in-depth interaction with us. Of them being able to, again, have rapport and relationship with us to tell us then what they want and need for themselves and maybe even for their kids. Um, I think more than anything else, it is about, like if we could say one thing about intake, and you all have probably heard this from your own directors and your programs over and over and over again, but it's about meeting people where they are. And that has to drive whatever the rest or the more formal part of the intake process. That meeting people where they are and continuing to thread that feeling of welcome, welcome, welcoming them, is really, really important. I just I was reading a book um, recently. I was telling you about this earlier. Um, Chanel Miller has a memoir out that's called Know My Name. And I heard her speak this this summer, too. And one of the things that I remember her talking about that really stuck with me for us as advocates is she talked about when she was in the hospital getting her SANE exam after the assault. And she said that there was an advocate who met her there and she offered her oatmeal. And, you know, years later, that really stuck with her in that, what that, oh, it wasn't just oatmeal. It wasn't just right. some food, but it was this feeling of like, I've got you and I can, like, this is a basic need and I'm here and I can provide, you know, like offer this to you. It was like an offering. And how that changed then her, the rest of her experience that day in the hospital, she was getting ready to have, you know, a detective, you know, come in and do the interview with her. And she. Like just knowing that I was held in that way by this little tiny bowl of oatmeal was really important. Um, So I think about that when I think about intake. Other kinds of things, considerations when we're talking about intake. We were actually probably talking about this a little bit in a different way a few minutes ago. It is about not screening people out. You know, it's not about asking questions of, you know, screening out substance abuse or mental health issues. It's about meeting people where they are. Having really open and frank conversations about how trauma can impact people, Um, you know, really normalizing that, talking about how people can cope in all different ways. We talked about this morning about how we cope with the trauma. And again, our people who are walking through our programs are no different than us. They're no different than us. They're going to have their own set of coping mechanisms. If we can have some of those conversations at the very beginning of intake, of not just checking off, again, our paperwork of, you know, what's your history on this and history on that, but really being able to start that conversation of how trauma can impact us and there's not going to be judgment around that. And if it's something you want to work on, then great, giving people options. We're back to me saying that again. Um, I think that that's, that's really, important. I want to double back for a second to this, a little bit of the thread of the oatmeal and our physical space. I I hear a lot of people at all of our programs across um, the state and there is some truth to there has to be some paperwork done. You know, it's really important that, that, that some of that very basic information is captured when people come in. And, it, and it's going to look different from one program to the next across our KCADV programs. And one of the things as we're conversing about this is it doesn't mean that you have to do the whole flip and packet like the first five minutes that they walk in the door. We're back to what we were talking about before. We're back to the oatmeal. It might be about just asking them, what do you need right now? Do you need a glass of water or a cup of tea or a cup of coffee? You know, do you need us to you know, find some coloring books or you know, something for your you know, kiddos to look at while we chat? You know, like, like literally just asking what they need to be comfortable so they can meet you where they are. And sometimes it's about setting that up so that then maybe you do the most basic paperwork that needs to get done. And again, you're languaging it, not... You're always, when we're talking about intake, what we always want to be mindful of is how are we taking away the power differential? And we like to think that there's no power differential because we're advocates and we're in there with them and, you know... And we're fooling ourselves if we think that there isn't. You know, they're walking into our space. We get paid. You know, we have a title. But are you making them come in and sit across a desk, you know, from you with, you know, they're in the client seat and you're over here in the professional seat? How can we take some of that away, peel that away so that we're back to what we were talking about this morning, where we're it's just two people sitting talking to each other, right? And, and hearing what what's brought you here today, what do you what are your needs? You know, let me. I'm, my job is to listen to what you have to share and to think about anything I can think of that could be helpful. You know, to what what you're telling me. So thinking about that, paying attention to that imbalance of power, talking about how they've coped. It might not might be not going into the whole. When I say whole, I mean the more lengthy, longer documentation that, that needs to happen um, for intake to really do the work that you all need to do in shelter, but, but being mindful that it can be spread out a little bit. What comes up for you when you hear me well, say some I, of this?
0: I, I really wish folks could could be here right now in this room as you were telling the story um, of the oatmeal, because it, was, it just sort of flew off of you, the, the humanity that, that We need to meet people with, you know, like you could just, I don't know if people can hear it through, you know, airwaves of things, but, but just visibly like your whole body and tone changed when you were talking about that. And, and that's that place of intake is not something to get through to check off to get it done. it's it's something to begin this process and to walk with a person and this is where this is where that partnership starts um, and to really think of it as a partnership and and the um, honor of that somebody trusted you enough to come in and to share this new path that they are terrified of, most likely, I would think. Um, So beginning that process uh, is something. And and I'm glad you brought up about we have to always sort of check the power differential. They're sitting there. They don't know you. You are whether they are going to stay or not stay. Yes. That's, That's the reality. And so we're wanting them to be open and honest and trust, but they're afraid to share potentially, or afraid to say things because maybe if they acknowledge that they have a substance use or addiction issue, they're not going to be able to stay. Or maybe they have a past criminal history or possibly an outstanding warrant or summons, and they're afraid to share that with you. Or maybe there's other things in their past that they don't feel comfortable... giving you that information, because there's a lot of power over knowing someone's, you know, uh, intimate uh, secrets or, or, or life pieces. So, so this is the time to start building that trust relationship. Um, I know I talked with you again as we were planning, and there's two uh, things that I really hope people maybe take a little time, um, on their own to check out. I I love Patty Bland. I just love, 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 love Patty Bland. She's passed away now. KCADV has had her here doing a training. I went to a two day training um, that she held. She also was at the KCADV KSAP mm. conference. So I I just really like her. she does amazing work around intake. And mm. a lot of it is how do you how do you use language? How do you watch your word choice to begin to have people be safe and available So if you go, do you have a drug issue? Well, the response is going to be no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I do not. Um, So are you asking it in a normalizing way? Mm -hmm. Many people who have experienced intimate partner violence often Might turn to you know. However, might turn to drugs or alcohol. What is your what is your coping mechanism? What do you use? That's a much different way of saying that versus do you do this? And someone's going to just deny. Right. Um, so really, kind of looking at how you how you begin to build that. And I really like. I'm going to bring up Brene Brown again. I don't. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I you know I do know people do really you, do love her, but but I've I've held out. You know, like when somebody gets too popular, right? It's like you like a band. And and then they're too popular, and it's like I don't like that band anymore. I feel that way with Brene Brown. It's like, oh, she's kind of cool. She wraps things up, and then all, everybody was like, oh, you got to listen, you got to listen. And now I'm like, oh, well, you know. But she is really good at wrapping things up, and she uses an acronym, um, and it's braving, and it kind of breaks down how you begin to build trust with an individual. And and as you're, I'm presuming if you're listening into this, you're you're on this, you're on this sort of educational space and self reflection space about how to do the work. Better. And so, I think lots of folks hold components of how they build trust well, but they might not be a hundred percent in all things. So it really gives you some ability to work on that. Do you have really good boundaries? Are you um, confidential? Do you show up in integrity? You know, like what are those things? And and if you not if you're maybe not quite as good in some, this is where you can kind of hone that in. Like I was trying to do a lot of work on how do you how do you teach new staff how to build trust? How do you teach new staff to have empathy and compassion? How do you teach that? That's a hard... It is hard.
1: It's, it's harder than I thought it would be. It's a really be. hard concept. I, we, One of my colleagues and I at L, because we uh, unfortunately can interact with, you know, our students can interact with a lot of folks who might not be as trauma informed, um, in different departments or faculty or things. And my colleague and I often say like, can people just be nice? Like, just be nice. Like this seems like it's like the most basic easy thing in the world, but apparently it's, Hard. No, it's hard for some and people. Trust. It's really nice. hard.
0: I'm glad for the two of us. that It <laughs> is not hard, but I think it. I think it is hard um, for some folks. Or again, they're afraid of being vulnerable, mm-hmm. or they're in that space of um, I don't want to. I don't want to get too close. I, I'm not showing up full heartedly. So how you say it? I kind of say soft belly and hard back, or hard mm-hmm. shell. But but because I don't want to get burned out, so I'm afraid to show up this way. Um, so so kind of using. Uh, or any of that self-work I think can really um, amend or change how a person receives and is and is uh brought in to your program and 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 can begin to trust sorry to Overuse that word. Um, the other thing that pops up for me, Tisha, is a little bit is in that self work, checking your own biases, mm-hmm. and that is so hard because you know what you know, like you just right. you just do, and so many biases are just kind of underneath, like they're they're not intentional, they're layered underneath. You just know from your personal experience. We talked about that in the in the um, discussion earlier of. So many people come to do this work, and you know your experience with getting out, perhaps, of an intimate partner um, violence situation because of what you did. But that doesn't work for everybody. So it's, it can't all be through what you did. And we often sort of see the world through how we've experienced it. Sure. And underneath that can be a lot of bias. So are you doing the work? Um, Harvard Business School does um they have some like online things where you can just sort of check your bias. I did one the other day just on religion. It was between Muslim and Jewish. Do I have a bias one way or the other? It was really fascinating. You know, it's just sort of this quick thing. But I think, again, just challenge yourself all the time. You've got to be able to be at a place to show up for people and, and, and receive them wholeheartedly. And-
1: that part, Diane, takes me back to our conversation this morning in that we have to trust our team. We have to trust our supervisors. Our supervisors have to trust us to do that kind of action on a regular basis and to have those kinds of conversations on a regular basis, because it's not always you know, talking about all of us have, have implicit bias. All of us do. And it's one of those things that people don't want to talk about, right? Just like what we were just talking about with. The intake process, you know, all of those, all of these pieces, whether it's about experiencing the violence, whether it's about you know, using, you know, different substances or having mental health issues, like all of those things carry some shame with them, unfortunately, still. And so it's hard for people to talk about it. But the more we're back to that trust, you know, whether it's across us as an advocate team or whether it's between us as advocates and the folks that we're serving, the more that that trust is built, then we're going to be able to have some of those honest conversations and learn more and find those blind spots that we might might not have, you know, even known or been paying attention to the other, th- one last thing about the intake, and then we can move on to the next um, area if you want to. But the other thing that I was thinking about is that trauma and the trauma is not linear. And it's like the, the process after a traumatic event is not the heal- healing, you know, sort of the, the processing of it. It's not a linear process. It's not a like, if you have do step one, step two, step three, it's very circuitous. And again, the neurobiology tells us that even a lot of the information, the memory, those the you know, the, the data is gonna come out in bits and pieces. So it's not fair for us as advocates to expect to get the full, you know, very clean and clear draft of information and have all, you know, everything that they need and everything that they experienced and blah, 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 in one conversation. It's gonna come out bit by bit. And the more that they trust us and the more that they have rapport with us, the more they're going to be able to circle back and say, oh, I forgot to tell you this part. Or actually, this is something I am really needing or my kids, you know, are needing. um, Or this happened to us too. I forgot about that. So I think we just have to remember that of just the nature of trauma.
0: Can I click back to one thing and then we yes. will move into programs? But when you were talking about nice and we were patting ourselves on the back because we're nice people, which is true, we are <laughs> we are nice
1: people with biases. With so biases,
0: too. with intent, yeah. Um, but nice people can do a lot of damage, though, right? If you're not doing the work, so with best of intentions, yes, nice people can do. Damage. I have done so much work on intentions lately because I would get in that space. My intention was this. My mm. intention was that. And I finally had someone tell me, go, we really don't give a darn, Diane, about your intentions. <laughs> this was the result. <laughs> This is what happened, and I still stuck with it. Like I still was like, you just yeah, don't, God. you just don't understand, you know. Um, and I've really, really, really been digging at that. And I'm now I'm like queen of intentions. Stink? No, I'm not really, but but I think it does matter. Good intentions and kindness is not enough if you're not doing the work and you're not being curious and you're not asking how people are uh, responding or what they need around things. Like like they are the experts on their own lives defer defer to that and if you have to apologize if you messed up do it yes. you know
1: I can't tell you the number of times where I've had I've sat huh. with people and I've been like I, times a I day. do not know and I or what well, i like I don't know like we're gonna have to we will figure this out and I'm gonna sit here and tell you like I don't know
0: yeah and I, 100 and I apologize a hundred
1: times a day me too hundreds yes yeah. Five. When you were talking about, and this might be a, a segue into services and programs for us, which is another um, topic that we wanted to talk about. This is actually kind of a really Weird way in, okay. It's not good. Maybe nice. we were thinking about the services. And programs. We were thinking this
0: podcast was getting a little <laughs> lame. We're excited now,
1: but when you when you brought up the, you know, sometimes just being nice can do damage. Yeah, I was thinking about something that I read, and I actually I've experienced this with a lot of people who've come into our our program at U of L. Is they've they've decided that they're at a point, and so this is what I'm about to talk about. It is just like one thread or strand of what can be included in our services and programs, and that's therapy. And and there are really good and nice and well-intentioned and trained therapists like out in our communities. Not all of them are trained in trauma and what i've seen is that there are there are like some folks that i've worked with have, you know, they've been ready, they've decided they're going to go get a therapist, they're going to try counseling, and they go. And then they actually end up, like, in a worse place because that practitioner doesn't understand trauma or wasn't trained in or that's not their specialty and actually did more damage to them. And then they didn't want to go see anybody, right. <laughs> you know, next. And so that's, so, so if we are segueing into this next area of services and programs, one of the things that we can, one of the offers that we can either think about having in-house or having partners with our community, you know, collaborations, which is another topic we're going to talk about, Mm -hmm. is is do we have practitioners who are trained in trauma and for the folks who might want to talk about the more complexities of trauma? Maybe they don't want to just talk about, you know, the acute trauma safety planning, you know, PTSD that they might be experiencing like in the moment, but they really want to dig in. You've been using that word, dig in, doing your own, you know, dig in work. And, you know, do they really want to look at the complexity of it and their history and kind of work with somebody on a little bit longer, you know, period of time? or more in-depth or with different modalities with somebody who's really trained in that. Um, So I'm going to pause there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I. um, um, it's something that we always sort of deal with a little bit too of of what is that balance of people when they're ready to maybe um, dig in to do that work and and you start to refer to therapeutic services. We sometimes operate a little bit that so much of the shelter time is just getting safe, getting grounded, getting, um, you know, just beginning to feel, you know. where that next step is, beginning to expand your world a little bit as to who you can trust and who you can't and and what are your resources. And then we sometimes see that the therapeutic process might be better as they're ending their uh, shelter stay with us or they're a little further along, but not necessarily. Again, every person is a little bit different. You were going to say something? I think we're back to
1: going back and talking with the people that we serve. And asking, what do you need? You know, what 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 do our pro, what's missing from our programs and offerings? I mean, and, and I'm not saying that we don't have knowledge to start really paying attention to those trends, like you were just talking about. Like, actually, this might be a better placement for it if it came after somebody, you know, are out of that acute phase and it's when they're sort of leaving, yes. you know, shelter. That's that's important knowledge and information to track. You know, that you and your advocates are going to see. And I think this is an opportunity. And this isn't just about the therapy part, but when we're talking about sort of the depth and breadth of of offerings that we can create, the programming that we can create, the services that we can offer, like, we're just back to, gosh, we're, we don't know everything. You know, like, we're not every single person who comes through our buildings or through our doors. Like, we need to ask, what is it, what would be supportive to you? You know, what's missing
0: from what we're offering right now? And that might change over time. Right. Right. I, th- I think so. This is an area, though, that I think often can kind of waylay folks in their advocacy journey. I hope I'm not overusing that word, but path <laughs> and journey. I don't. I have five words that I use. Britt, curiosity, <laughs> path journey. That's it. Brene Brown. And, Bre- and Brene Brown. Yeah. Brene Brown said this. I think. <laughs> she didn't really. But I often will hear new advocates going, I'm not comfortable going spaces with people. Like, I'm not comfortable because I'm going to ask them a question, and they're going to tell me about their sexual assault, and then I don't know what to do with that. So I'm really safe in my food stamp, um, health care, KTAP, housing applications. I'm very safe in this space. It's, it's, this is what we do. We fill out the paperwork, oh, the paperwork, fill out the paperwork and, <laughs> and nobody would have Don't a house. It to nobody <laughs> would have a house if they were in my program because I couldn't do the paperwork. Um, Like, stay in that safe space. And I'm just going to defer out to talk about all the grittier, another word I like, grittier space. And so, Tisha, what's your thought? Like, I'm really curious about this, actually, because I don't know what you're going to say. What... What is your thought on building the confidence of advocates to go there? And and why is that? I believe it is important. Why is that important for us to hold space for women to tell their stories? I'm not doing it as a therapist. Right, I'm not right. doing it to diagnose. I'm not Absolutely. doing it for that reason. I'm doing it because I'm honoring the story and to do good advocacy. I sort of need to Get a handle of that history and putting words to it, I think, is powerful for him or her. But but what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that hangs up. Hang. I think that's a hang up for advocates often. I'm afraid to travel down that road. And I think that that is a, like that's... <laughs>
1: we're getting in our own way and we're making it about us. And that's mm. not what we're in the business of. Right. Um, at the end of the day, what we want is to be able to pr- be of service and to provide good service for the person sitting in front of us. And and this goes back to us talking all day about, you know, the importance of, um, you know, of of people being able to process and being able to co-regulate and being able to share everything wholeheartedly and that it's gonna come out in bits and pieces. And if there's something that we're doing that is blocking that or not going there or not asking the question because of our discomfort, that's doing a disservice to them being able to process their trauma and get at a place where they are able then to do what you actually are wanting from them, which is that higher brain processing paper paperwork, planning, case plan stuff. And if you're not in the lower brain, like I'm just in survival mode and I am triggered and I'm like, I'm not supposed to say that word, but trauma reminded in the moment and I'm just like freaking out and it's coming out in that way. I'm not able to do your housing paperwork. So please let me tell my story if I can, but maybe I'm not going to if I don't feel safe enough because you're putting up walls and I can tell you don't really want to hear my story. So to me, that is about when we're noticing that in ourselves or we're noticing that in our Peers or as supervisors, we're noticing that. That's where we got to love on each other. Love—that's one of our other words today. Mm-hmm. Like trusting and loving on each other enough to say, "Gosh, like what's that discomfort about? Like how can we unpack that? What are you? What are you worried about? What, what's the worst that could happen if they tell that story? You know, um, you know what's blocking you from being open-hearted and meeting them in that space
0: where they can go." any place with you. That's interesting. So I, you know, I do think we stop short, a lot in our dialogue. And I think what I hear advocates often say, and I'll just speak from my own experience, is I don't want to do any damage. I don't want to do any harm. But honestly, I think it's more what you're saying. I don't want to hurt myself in this. I don't know if I'm ready to hear that story. I don't don't know that I can handle that. Which then goes back to what we were talking about earlier of preparing for that secondary trauma, right? right? Right. Of you're going to hear these stories. And you've got to do the work. I've always bumped into this a little bit in, in like self-care work. It's not just saying, I need to check out because that was too much. But you're, but, and sometimes you do. Yeah. Well, that's valid. Sure, sure. But it's also doing the work so you can hear the story. Right. Right. That's right. what you want to get. You don't right. want to just always give your permission to check out. I got to take a day off because that was a lot. Right. Time to time, of course. But really, you're getting your place. Where where you're able to kind of be present with a person in full humanity. Full like humanity. Your, like your oatmeal story. Yes. Which was beautiful, you know, getting to that place where you can really be human with an individual. And that's what advocacy, and that's why like advocacy as opposed to therapeutic places. Mm -hmm. You can go, you can be more women helping women in an advocacy role.
1: We don't have to have all the answers. That's actually freeing to me, you know, and back to what you were saying about the, you know, sometimes you might hear advocates talk about that they were afraid that they do harm if they went a certain place with them. My challenge to that is, in those moments that we're deciding not to go there or to shut down that part of the conversation, we're taking the power away from our our folks that we're working with. And that's not what we're in the business of doing. We're not, you know, we are in the business of them doing like being in control. That goes back to what we were talking about this morning of like the opportunity that we have as advocates to be in relationship with the folks who are in our programs. Every opportunity that we get where they can trust us a little bit more and have an interaction with another human being that isn't going to hurt them or provide more trauma to them and that they can actually start practicing telling their story or setting boundaries with us or, you know, doing all the things that they might not have been able to do, like with their partner or with the person that hurt them. Like, we're an opportunity for them to practice that. And if we're starting to decide, oh, we're not going to go and have that part of the conversation, we're just going to do this housing paperwork, that is taking that decision away from them. And I disagree with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I get on a high horse about this, yeah, but... Yeah, I think, too, in, in a programming, um, in, in just another place in, in programming consideration, um, there's always a little bit of talk. I don't hear it quite as much as I used to, but that kind of no-rules philosophy, mm-hmm. right? The no-rules philosophy. And, and even though some people kind of roll their eyes, just think that's a ridiculous concept. I don't know that they're 100% really getting what that means. And maybe it's bad language for... Maybe for what you're saying, but it's kind of what you were talking about. Advocates. It's a really freeing thing that you don't have to have all the answers. Yes. No rules. Philosophy is sort of a freeing philosophy <laughs> because if you if you create rules um, for every circumstance that might happen, really only maybe I'm making this up. I think Renee Brown said this. It <laughs> is maybe like twenty five. Or thirty percent of the of the folks that use your services are actually going to be comfortable in those rules, right? You know, so you're making all these decisions that sixty to seventy percent of your people, it's not reflective of their needs. So, so the no rules is not that you just have chaos all the time, but you're able to adapt and bend to what what the. Um, you know, what the folks are, are needing, whether, the, again, you're meeting them in court or support group or yes. shelter, wherever. You're able to adapt and bend. Now, you do want some structure. Absolutely. You want to build community. You want to build relationship. And there's, and there's uh, uh, structure around that or... or um, sociological rules around that but it's not overbearing it's not it's not in the individual it's not in the individual family you don't want to take that power and control away right that's what they've they've come for right. to get rid of right um, so I do think taking a second look for for programs that are kind of a little weird around the no rule philosophy I really think it causes it makes your work harder I really do think it makes your work harder yes
1: yeah and I, that what you were saying it, about it being freeing. I think I was trying to say this a few minutes ago like I, it's freeing to me to remind myself like I don't have to have the answer to every single thing. You know, I, I don't, like I can, which is why we're going to talk about for a few minutes before we wrap up, but the community collaborations, you know, I don't have to know everything about all the laws. I don't have to know, uh, you know, everything about mental health. I'm not going to be diagnosing, you know, people, but I can say, hey, if you're interested in this or if you want to talk more about this, like there is somebody who I know who you could call and I I know them and I trust them and I can give you a good referral on them or I can tell you about them or tell you about what they're offering is like. Um, and, and that's freeing to me, like to know that I don't, I, I feel like I could sit down and go into any conversation with somebody who walks into my office because I know I don't have to have all the answers.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Which Which is is really nice having your team around you, right? Right. Because Mm -hmm. I was really impressed. I was sitting in case review the other day, and again, we have a relatively new staff, and somebody was asking sort of an immigration kind of question. Mm -hmm. And one of the fairly newer people just started popping off all these resources and information. It was phenomenal. Like, I had my pen and paper. I was like, (laughs) where would you hear that, you know? But I didn't need to know that. I knew where to go to get it. Mm -hmm. And I was really please that, you know, within, uh, we talked about this earlier too, is you're beginning to find out where you fit in this work. I find that people start gravitating to certain areas of expertise, you know, so some people might be really connected to GLBTQ plus community. Some people really might be connected to, you know, immigrant and refugee community. Some people really might like working with kids. Um, so whatever that is, you start building an expertise so that you can call on your fellow teammates and your your community partners, which is our next step or our next talking point, so that you don't have to have everything. Don't feel compelled that you have to know everything. And your program doesn't have to be everything to everybody. Just sort of have these relationships and and partnerships. Um, and And then my piece that I think I do well, actually, is community partners, is get different people to the table. We always are there with the domestic violence program and the sexual assault program and the children Advocacy Center program. And, like, we have those people. Great. But get people that you normally don't have to come to the table um, so you can expand your resources and your knowledge and your partnerships and your... You know, um, you're doing a walkthrough of your building to see if it's reflective. Well, if you don't have anybody from Kentucky, you know, Migrant Coalition, you might be missing right. that, you know. Right. Um, so I'll turn it over to you, really, with sort of your piece. But I, that to me is a really important part is, is – expanding your vision a bit with community partners Mm -hmm. yes yes we can't do this alone
1: and we and it's freeing to not have to be experts on absolutely everything and we just don't have even in the best of our programs that have a lot of staff we just don't have the capacity and this work changes i mean i think about when i started this work in 98 and how it looks so different between then and now you know like I, I can't be an expert on all things and be knowledgeable about all things. So we have to, we have to have partners in all kinds of different places. Um, I think community collaboration, just like everything we've talked about, can look so many different ways. You know, everything from like you you gave the example of you know having folks from different coalitions like walk through your building and give input it can be writing you know grant doing a joint grant proposal with partners it can be you also mentioned earlier um, the prevention committee or coalition that you had had a meeting you know with that group and so there are people from different offices and agencies doing that prevention work with you could be doing cross training with folks Um, we don't have therapy in my office at uofl there's we have a staff of two full-time and one part-time person and we are we are on the ground doing advocacy there but we of a need and people couldn't our students couldn't get into the counseling center because they were overbooked that became an issue so we were able to write an mou with a center for women and families and um, a couple of their therapists come in once a week and see some of our our students so it can look that way it can look like um, you know working with your Law enforcement to have a lethality assessment program. Although I know lots of places are rethinking their their partnerships with law enforcement right now, rightfully so. Um, it could be having same day referrals to different service providers, like maybe the psychiatric nurse in your area, or you know, I have a partnership with our legal aid where I'm able to send students um, to her and she'll do an intake with them usually within 24 hours if they need you know representation. Um, for IPO court or DVO court, having bus tokens and hotel vouchers and, you know, interns from different departments that can help you out. Um, Maybe it's a communications major at UK, you know, for you that you wouldn't have thought that you needed, you know, you're used to maybe working with the social work department or the counseling department and but maybe they can help you with your social media so it's kind of what you were saying like just not thinking of just always the usual partners that we have and going back to our folks that we're serving and are coming into our programs and seeing what they need and then going out and finding those people. Right. Again, broken record with that message. Right, but
0: right. No, asking I, for their input. Yeah, I think so. And you know, you really can um become a little, I don't know if collusional is the word or guilty, because also I think if you're talking to the same people all the time, you're just not expanding. You know, yes. you're just not expanding your 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 concept, your your view of the world, your view of the work, you're limiting your options and your choices and where you can go. Your creativity starts to wane. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think can kind of go back also to the, um, the burnout of sure. if you're doing this work day in and day out and you're only hanging out with people that are doing this work day right. in and day out, well, you know, that's... You're done. Right, right. You you really have to find folks that can really sort of spark a different view, a different... I always kind of like hanging out with the theater artsy people. (laughs) Amazing art and activism work, you know, that can really happen. So, and it just gives you a different approach. So, um, and they can give you really good feedback too. Because Mm -hmm. if you're always looking at it through the lens of social work, you're going to be, you're going to shortchange yourself as you are doing self-evaluation and partner, you know, agency evaluation. So open that up. I I think great things can really sort of come from that. One thing that I want to add to what you're saying right there, Diane, that I want to
1: add to or circle back to the sort of programs and services part of our conversation from earlier is that, Part of our mission, I believe, needs to be opening up or creating more doors of access so that it's not just having a shelter, even though you and I know that is like an incredible list of services and programs and things that are actions that are happening within that building. We need to have more than just like people need to not just walk through that door or just walk through the court door or the outreach door, you know. But what are all of the different ways that someone could access our service? interact with us? And once they're there, do we have sort of a breadth and a depth of programs and offerings that we can offer to people as they are beginning to process like what they have experienced? Um, part of it is making sure that we've got lots of offerings that are just helping them cope you know right like meditation and yoga and breathing techniques and what to do when you know you have a panic attack or or you're have a trauma response like those are just some basic offerings around just their coping, you know, techniques. Um, we also know from the literature that expressive arts, you were just talking about hanging out with the theater arts and getting lots of good ideas. And we know in the the literature about trauma, it also tells us that people access, can access their trauma and can work with it when they're access or when they're utilizing some of those more expressive art techniques or more da- modalities. So writing groups and dancing groups and movement groups and going out and working on the farm, moving their bodies, you know, right? So um, creating, writing plays, performing plays, you know, all of those things that we might think of when we think of like expressive arts. Do we have some of those programs or offerings um, within our shelter and even without? Um, So I think it's important that we're thinking about just all of those different ways that people might be able to Interact with us and to make movement in their processing of their trauma, and knowing that we don't have to be the expert or the person that that does it all. That that's where that community collaboration, you know, comes right. into play. The, the community
0: on collaboration can be phenomenal, and and uh, yes, a hundred percent. But also, it goes back to who's who is on your staff and what skills do they have that they enjoy doing that might also facilitate that same thing. So we had a yoga instructor, right? right. So let's start doing trauma informed yoga with women in shelter and maybe out in the community. Um, I have one woman who loves to go hiking. Like she's, you know, she's just really big at that. And I'm like, why don't you do kind of like a hiking yes. group? It's really been fascinating to me. And you've, you know, this journey from me from, you know, 10, 15 years ago releasing advocates to feel comfortable to do something they enjoy. It's so funny. They don't want to kind of do the drudgery of the day to day, but at the same time, if they're not doing the drudgery of the day to day, they feel really guilty. You know, it's like, I'm not doing work. And so it's like, why don't you just do a book club? Oh, but I don't have time for that. I've got to do, you know, whatever. (laughs) I've got to do this support group and it's going to be the red flags of domestic violence. You know, or why don't you leave? Because that sounds really fun to go to. Yeah. And nobody coming. I only have two people attending, so I'm just going to keep doing it for 15 years. You know, it's like, (laughs) why don't you just do a book club hosted by your domestic violence program or do an economic empowerment, like hook up with some, you know, financial advisors and stuff and talk about, you know, money and asset building and host it by Greenhouse 17. Like... Do things that get people access differently. Not everybody's in a crisis moment. Not everybody wants to go to the church basement for a support right. group. Groups are great. Relationships are great. When we were talking about programming, we didn't talk about the importance of support groups. Mm-hmm. I think they're phenomenal. Um, and, it, it yeah, I, I just think it's phenomenal work when you're coming out of an abusive situation. But also having those sort of specialized pieces depending on how people yes. receive information. Art, yoga, um, educational, like whatever that is. And you also open up to a a larger, um, I don't know, a a mix of... uh, We had a woman who did a support... uh, She did a training with the bar association. I'm trying to think, but it was... um, the, the afflicted, oh shoot, what was it? She was really worried about people of wealth not having access to services. Mm-hmm. They didn't think the nonprofit was there for them. Like they just didn't think that's who they should be going to. So they were going to therapists who really didn't understand. Yeah. Um, or didn't know how to work. do the
1: advocacy part of it, e- right? Exactly.
0: Yeah, what was the name? It was Affluent Affliction. That's what it oh. was. She felt she felt that she was not getting services because she was a woman of affluence. And most of our programming is not, honestly, right, right. marketed and geared towards. Right. But she would have gone to an economic empowerment group hosted by Greenhouse sure. 17 or something. So anyways, you know, think a little outside of your 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 box of whether it's your partnerships or the skills of folks that, you know, people have that work for you and just think about how that could be utilized to do that outreach. Um, I, I think that
1: ties, that idea ties us back to our conversation earlier in part one in that when people are able to tap into what lights when I say people I mean us as advocates to tap into what lights us up that's also going to sustain us longer in the work so if we're able to bring some of that and weave that into the more drudgery gritty dailiness of our work but still have something that really lights us up then we're going to stay we're gonna stay longer right you know so I think that's a really yeah. one of your people that I coached years ago she she wanted to have she called it her passion project. And she wanted to find something she was passionate about that she could bring into her work and develop it, but something that would light her up as well. Nice.
0: Is she still with us? She is. Yay. Yay. Okay, good. Yay. good. So, <laughs> success. Um, oh. So we sort of talked through this tool. The, the last little thing I I had just to sort of end on is, you know, uh, my prompt was, you know, can we do this work perfectly? And and I said that with a little uh, silliness because it's not perfect, right? Like if we're holding it up to be perfect, we're always going to disappoint selves. And so, um, you know, I just, I don't know any kind of last words, last moments of, of kind of wrapping up all this conversation. That's a big challenge for Mm -hmm. you, Tisha. So sorry. Last Mm -hmm. little things that that you kind of want to leave people with as they're kind of navigating.
1: I think that the, I think that the perfect way to do this work is everything that we have talked about and shared. And it's about, it's about letting yourself be messy. It's about being, asking yourself questions. It's about being curious. It's about doing your own work. It's about not having to have all the answers. It's about showing up wholeheartedly. Um, That's that that's perfect. The imperfection of it is what makes it perfect. And, and what we talked about earlier of like taking care of yourself and just assessing sort of where you're at in your own response to everything and listening to Brene Brown podcast.
0: (gasps) Have you heard of her? Did I mention her? <laughs> you might need to listen to her. And I'll throw in Patty Blaine because I really do love right. her. I do love her. Thank you so much for this conversation today. It was really lovely. And um, thanks for everybody who is listening in. We're so glad you are part of our club. Excited to see where this work might take each and every one of you. And so that is it for Module 3 KCADV Certification. Have a great day.